You are listening to America's home for stadium news and information. Stadiums USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. The Major League Baseball season is ready to begin, and so are the promotions. Most of them are tried and true through the years, but occasionally a promotion does go off the rails. We'll visit with this great game's Eric Goldsberry about promotions gone bad. No major league venue hosts more events than the Staples Center in Los Angeles. How do you juggle the needs of the Clippers, the Lakers, the Kings, the Sparks, all under one roof? We'll find out. The Seattle Pilots are a footnote in baseball history today. We now know them as the Milwaukee Brewers, but they took the first step in major league sports in the Pacific Northwest. We'll learn more about their brief history and the plumbing problems at the stadium they called home. But first, the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, the focus of NFL owners appears to be clearly set on Las Vegas as the future home of the Raiders. Owners are gathering in Phoenix where the main agenda is expected to be a vote to allow Mark Davis to take the silver and black to Vegas. If approval does not take place, it'll be due to unresolved financial issues that the league wants to see buttoned up before the Raiders are given the green light. Coming up later in the program, more on the owners and interesting thoughts on the Raiders' relocation fee with Mark and Bill. Final four preparations continue at University of Phoenix Stadium to host next weekend's big games. Workers began installing the temporary scoreboard that will hang over the court. The massive structure measures 13,000 square feet and consists of 764 LED screens. This will be the first Final Four contest at the 10-year-old Phoenix venue, which has already hosted two Super Bowls. University of Tennessee officials are attempting to break a record at iconic Neyland Stadium. The school is inviting over 4,000 students and staff to form the world's largest letter T. Chancellor Beverly Davenport hopes the event will be a uniting experience for the university. And part of the renovation project at Vivint Smart Home Arena in Salt Lake City includes saying goodbye to those familiar green seats that have been part of the venue since it opened in 1991. Part of the $110 million makeover at the home of the Jazz includes fully upholstered plush back and contour foam seats, all of them in Jazz Navy Blue. What's happening to those old green plastic seats? They are being offered as keepsakes to season ticket holders who renew their seats for the next season. Bill, that's the very latest. Okay, Jeff, thank you. Baseball season is not far away, and with it, we will experience the requisite promotions of the day. And it could range from seat cushions to giveaway baseballs to bobbleheads, who knows what. If we go back and look at some of these events, we find some of them did not go so well. And that's the topic for this segment of the program. We're going to visit with Eric Goldsberry, the creator of the website This Great Game, 
and it has a huge history of Major League Baseball within that. Eric, you undertook quite a list of some of the baseball promotions gone wrong, and this is a litany of everything that could go wrong in baseball. I think you pretty well captured it. One of the items which you focused on was the yellow baseball experiment. Tell us the story. Yeah, so what happened was the yellow baseball had actually been tried in the 1920s in some college games, but in an effort to keep the ball fresh, to keep it white, and, of course, to keep offense up in Major League Baseball, uh, they thought, we'll go one step more and we'll try a yellow, uh, yellow baseball. And Larry McPhail, who was the, the chief executive for the Dodger, Brooklyn Dodgers, thought, okay, well, it seems like it might be working cause, so let's try it out. So what they did, it's not really so much uh, an actual yellow baseball. They actually painted the ball yellow. And that was a problem because once they put this ball on the play, yeah, it looked great. You know, you could see it clearly. But the problem was, as the game wore on, the yellow baseball, the paint would start to wear off unless you get moisture around the baseball. And it actually made it a deader baseball. So offense didn't really come out as a result. It was an increased offense. It was a situation where the ball just kind of became a dead ball again. We're right back to the dead ball era once more with the yellow baseball. So they tried it about two, three times. I think they tried it actually over a couple of years in Brooklyn here and there on a rare occasion. But finally, they just said, yeah, not a good idea. You know, there's a special place in your treatise here for the Chicago White Sox. And, of course, it's impossible <laughs> that the Sox couldn't have a prominent uh, uh, aspect of this because they had some incredible uh, promotional stuff. And, of course, Bill Vack ran the White Sox for many, many years. Let's talk about when the White Sox donned shorts. I never forgot seeing a picture of this in the paper. It looks so funny. Bill Vack, as you know, no promotion was too shameless to him for at times. And a lot of his promotions really did work out. Uh, other times, not so much. During the early part of the year, just had the White Sox one day go out and, and as part of a fashion show of sorts, put on, you know, had the players wear shorts. And the players were thinking, well, okay, this is fine, but they're never going to actually have us use these in the game, are they? Well, imagine their surprise one day when they came to the clubhouse and they found out that they had shorts you know, racked up for them to put on. <laughs> Some of the players were not thrilled about it. The thing was, they tried it about, I think I want to say about three times. They won all the games that they, uh, I wish they played the shorts. And you would think, okay, well, the big problem is they're not going to want to slide in these shorts because, you know, they're going to get a lot of scrapes and stuff from, you know, the direct contact and skin mm -hmm. to the dirt. Mm -hmm. uh, they actually tried eight stolen bases in these three games, and they were successful all eight times. So, wow. obviously, it didn't seem to hurt their performance. But still, at the end, they just, the shorts just looked too darn goofy. And so, Bill Vector even Bill Vector said, yeah. Let's put these back in the drawer. So that was it for the shorts. Disco Demolition Night ranks second. To me, that was the promotion that Bill Vec never survived. I gather that this promotion must have really blindsided him. Well, I'll tell you what. It was uh, it was successful in one sense. I mean, they were expecting 15,000 people to show up to Comiskey Park. 50,000 ended up showing up, and another 50,000 reportedly were turned away. The thing was, is that people who came to the ballpark, uh, they would pay only 98 cents to come in if they brought disco records to get destroyed. And pretty much everybody did. The White Sox at some point said, we can't take all these records. You got to hang on to them. So all these fans are sitting in the stands with these 
albums and they said what are we going to do and they just want to sit around with them so they started flinging around the air like uh frisbees and dangerous projectiles going all over the place and they nearly had to stop the first game and declare forfeit just because of that you know that's the only saving grace of what happened in cleveland cleveland's municipal stadium could hold over seventy thousand. had you ever thought about how the 10 cent beer night could have gone if all of those seats were filled I don't know if uh, Cleveland Stadium would have survived it. They had 25000 there for, for 10 cent beer night, which is double the season average at the time. Mm-hmm. Mike Hardrobe, who was the, uh, the future manager for the uh, Cleveland Indians at the time playing for the Rangers, he nearly got hit by a wine jug. It's just something where the fans just got out of hand as the game got along. The Indians rallied in the bottom of the ninth and looked like, okay, maybe the fans will actually kind of start behaving and enjoy the game, enjoy this comeback effort. But they were just too out of it by then. And they just started to invade the field. And, you know, the Texas Rangers, the visiting Texas Rangers at that time was managed by Billy Martin, mm-hmm. who is not the kind of guy you want to cross paths with if you're storming out in the field drunk. And unfortunately, that's what took place. And Billy Martin decided to take the offensive and told all his players to grab a bat and defend them not only themselves, but the Indians. And the irony of all this was that just a week earlier, the two teams, the Indians and Rangers, had a series down in Arlington that nearly became a riot because of a series of fights that was taking place on the field between the two teams. So now they were like brothers in arms trying to defend themselves against all these drunkards coming out of the Cleveland Stadium stands. Oh, man, Eric, this is a great story. It's a great read. We want to suggest that everybody drop by this great game and check out your list of the greatest promotions of baseball gone bad. Continued success to you, and uh, thanks for coming aboard with us. You bet, Bill. Thanks very much. Now, stay tuned, because coming up, we go inside the Staples Center in Los Angeles and learn what it is like to transition from basketball to hockey and then transition back and do all of it in just a few hours. That's next on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. I think you could make a very strong case that the Staples Center in Los Angeles is perhaps the nation's busiest athletic facility. It most certainly is one of the largest in scope and a great, great building. It's been awarded a number of times. It is currently the home facility for the Lakers and Clippers of the NBA, the Kings of the National Hockey League. They've had numerous concerts, trade shows, all sorts of events there. We're going to take a peek inside and see how you actually keep everything moving in and out of there, which is the daily job of 
Armin Dembekjian. He is the director of operations for this venue. Armin, you have a prime job right here, but brother, you have a busy job because uh, a typical day must be a little bit on the crazy side as you're moving various configurations in and out. Take us through some of that, what it's like to convert this from one sport to another. It's 24 hours here nonstop, Bill. Uh, we go with, uh, like you said, we have the Los Angeles Lakers, the Los Angeles Clippers, the Los Angeles Kings, and the champions, uh, Los Angeles Sparks, the women's basketball team as well. On a normal conversion, when we go from basketball to basketball overnight, we do it in about in less than four hours, but we can do it on a doubleheader in one day. Uh, it, we, if, if let's say for example the Lakers play at 12:30, the Clippers play at 6:30, we have an hour in between to change everything around, and that takes about 45 guys, which consists of the conversion crew, the event crew, maintenance, engineering. It's all hands on deck. Everybody gets out there. We flip the court, flip the building, get it ready for the next for the next game to start. And then on the other hand, we have there's uh, conversions between basketball to hockey overnight. That takes about five hours with uh, 22, 23 guys, but we can do that on this, within the same day as well. Let's, for, let's say, for example, the Kings play at 1 o'clock and the Clippers play at 7.30. We would do that in about an hour and 15 minutes, just around two hours, give or take, to have the building ready from one sport to the other. You know, Armin, a lot of people may think a little bit about that first scenario you mentioned, the Lakers playing one and then the Clippers playing the same day, and they may say, well, that's no big deal. You just go ahead and broom the floor off and have the next team come out. <laughs> but it isn't that way, is it? You have a total conversion there, too. That no, That is no. unusual. So the court is completely different. Each mm-hmm. team owns their own different court. Mm. Uh, the court side seat layout is slightly different. The scorer's table that you see, uh, that's completely different. Mm-hmm. The baskets are different. So the entire floor, just about the entire floor, gets switched out from one team to the other. And then there's also, in and around the, 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 the venue, there's uh, banners and uh, pole wraps, things of that nature that have to get changed out as well. I'm amazed that you changed the baskets, Armin. I would never have known that one. That's correct. Each team has their own baskets. Uh, and then there's a third one in case, just in case if one of them goes down. In terms of the actual planning of this, Armin, uh, at some point well in advance, you're looking at a scheduling situation, which is unusual here. Can you take us through how you handle and determine what's going to be needed and when? It's all about prepping the night before. Mm-hmm. Um, we make sure the right equipment is in the right storage unit. We have two storage units, uh, each corner of the venue. So as things are getting forklift and carted off on one end, the other items are coming off. So let's say if the Clippers are playing first, we would stack their court, roll it off on the south end, and then from the north end, the, the other basket is coming. And same thing goes when there's uh, basketball, uh, when there's hockey involved as well. The glass goes out from one end as the court is coming in from the other. 
Armin, I'm sure you've kept a very close eye on a lot of the talk going on in the National Hockey League regarding ice conditions. We've seen that, and probably the focal point of that has been the Barclays Arena in Brooklyn, where they have struggled there. Now, you have a lot of changeouts, plus you're in a warm-weather environment. How have you been able to navigate through that, and how does your ice compare uh, in a multi-purpose facility with some of the others? We know we have the best ice in the league. Mm. The teams won the championship in 2012-2014. It was on the best ice. Mm-hmm. Um, no, all jokes aside, our <laughs> engineering team our engineering team does a great job. Uh, we work close with the NHL hockey ops as well, uh, within their expertise, their direction, and our engineers here, because they are here, they're living it every day. Over the years, over the 17, 18 years that this building's been functioning, they've been able to figure out, adjust based off what the temperature is outside. We can pretty much guess what it's going to be inside, and based off that, adjust the temperature, humidity, and so on. Armin, has the building been upgraded to the new LED uh, light uh, power plants? We did that about two years ago. We switched out to all LED lighting. It's interesting because for those who have learned about lighting as I have, uh, in the older type of style of lighting, there were constant adjustments that had to be made as the light bulbs themselves aged. You'd have to be readjusting the various aspects of it and that. I would imagine this is a lot easier with the new uh, with the new generation lighting. With the, with the new technology, it's a lot easier. They last a lot longer. Um, But again, with with us being a unique building, each Mm -hmm. team has a different lighting look as well. So we get with the team uh, and their game entertainment folks and and with the approval of the league as well, we take the direction from them on what look they want. If it's more focused on the court or light up the entire venue, um, obviously staying within codes as well. So each team has a different look that they like. And uh, our lighting director, along with our engineers, we adjust as needed and uh, make sure that we uh, provide the best experience. This, of course, is a concert venue as well, as are a lot of the big buildings. Some big buildings don't really translate very well into concert venues, be it acoustics or some other issue. How does the Staples Center do? Uh, Again, over the, the last 17, 18 years, we've made adjustments. Um, we have a new uh, audio system in the building in the last few years, JBL system, that our head audio tech does a great job. Uh, same thing, we advance that, we let the tours know, so in case they would like to use it, it is available for them, and we make the necessary adjustments to make sure that it's a good show for them. What is the single hardest thing to maintain about this building specifically, where you really have to work at it? Nothing really stands out other than the timing. Uh, we have, you know, like we have this week, we have an event every day. Next week, we have an event every day. Mm. The week after, there's only one day that we don't have an event. So it's it's making sure that everything looks presentable 
and try to be try to look as brand new as possible before doors open for the next group of folks that come in, which is normally on a 7:30 game, 5:30 doors are open. So it's always the goal is to be set, ready, fix whatever we had to fix from the night before by 5:30 every day. Well, Armin, you're a good guy, and I want to thank you very much for taking time to visit with us. And uh, I imagine there are days where your head is spinning faster than Linda Blair in The Exorcist, but uh, trying to get everything taken care of there but you're doing a great job with the arena and uh, continued success with it a wonderful building a dedicated staff that sounds like a winning combination to me congratulations thank you very much bill it's a pleasure armin dembechian is our guest he is the director of operations at the staples center in los angeles now stay tuned coming up mark madoran and i will break down this week's stadium headlines we're going to talk shop that's next on sb nation radio How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. It is time to talk shop once again. We examine this week's stadium headlines. And for that, we welcome Mark Madoran, president of Stadiums USA. Here's one that is gaining buzz this week in the NBA. We are seeing the practice of NBA players being rested in season. Players like LeBron James and some of the other big names are being selectively removed from games for rest purposes. Commissioner Adam Silver sent a memo to the league's Board of Governors, Mark. He called the issue significant. This fits right into our line of discussion, and it begs a very simple question. Why spend the big bucks to go to the arena if there's no guarantee that the big names are going to be there? It's a serious problem. Think of the fans shelling out the big money to watch an NBA game. Uh, let's just pick a game. I chose one, the Cleveland Cavaliers at the Chicago Bulls. It's coming up on March 30th. Mm-hmm. And then I went, let's say I wanted to sit center court. In really good lower bowl center court seats, my tickets are going to cost me $555 each. So if I buy four tickets, that's $2,220. Wow. Now I get to the game and I find out that the biggest star of the game, LeBron James, it's not in the lineup. And a matter of fact, he's not even going to play that night. Mm-hmm. He's in street clothes taking the day off. That's really, really tough for me as a fan to justify that kind of money and not see the greatest player in the game who I paid money to see that night. Yeah. Uh, the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, has recognized it. Uh, as you mentioned, he called it a significant issue. The decision to rest star players not only affects fans who attend, which is more our concern as far as stadiums, it also affects fans that watch on TV. 
Uh, you turn on the TV to watch LeBron James and he's not playing. You're probably going to see if there's a rerun of uh, uh, Bonanza on TV. <laughs> might be more interesting. So they're concerned about their numbers. They need those viewers. Ratings are what drive the, the numbers on commercials. Teams claim that the 82-game schedule is so demanding that star players require rest to keep playing at their best and to get them ready for the playoff run. Uh, when the games are much more physically demanding. And there's probably some truth to that as well. Mm -hmm. But under current rules, the only thing teams must do is provide the league and media with notice if a player intends to be rested. So some people have talked about extending the season or maybe dropping games. But with the money involved, they're not going to drop any games off the schedule. No, of course not. They're probably going to look at how can we schedule games so that they play a lot fewer of the back-to-back kind of contests before you get to the end of the season. And the problem here is, Mark, that the NBA, as an integral promotion point, promotes individual players. From a promotional standpoint, it's not the Cleveland Cavaliers taking on the Chicago Bulls. It's LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers taking on the Chicago Bulls. That's the problem, it seems to me. Exactly right. And when ABC or ESPN... Uh, is promoing that game three or four days ahead of its broadcast. What what are they showing on screen as a, a graphic? Mm. It's a picture of LeBron James going to the hole. Let's go to the NFL, where Commissioner Roger Goodell is working on speeding up the game. This is refreshing news, I'll say. What does he have in mind here, Mark? Well, there are changes coming in the way the NFL games are broadcast, Bill. Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, has announced a plan to restructure commercial breaks as well as the in-game timing of replay reviews, which I think means that those replay reviews that take four and five minutes, I think they're going to have a time limit on them. So when once they start looking at them, they're going to have like 90 seconds to make a decision, and if they can't make it, the call will stand up as is. Mm -hmm. The commercial breaks, though, will be different. There will be fewer commercial breaks but they're going to go a little bit longer. So you won't have to quite as much rush over to the refrigerator to get your, your beverage as you did in the past. It'll have a few more minutes, but there'll be fewer of those breaks. And one of the things they're looking at is um, that commercial break, then a kickoff, which probably resulted in a touchback anyways, and then another commercial break right after that. Those are the things they want to stop. Because if you're in a stadium for those, you know that can be 12 minutes and all they did is kick off into the end zone. Um, not much happening there. So they want to keep the fans in the game and try and shorten it up. Although these changes probably won't affect the time of the game that much. The average NFL game last year, three hours and seven minutes. Coming up in the new year, the projection is it'll probably be more in the range of a three hour and two minutes, three hour and three minutes on average. So it's not going to cut a lot of time off the game, but it will make it a little more watchable. Mark, a few weeks ago, you visited Las Vegas and you shared with our audience here the belief that the Raiders' move to Las Vegas is virtually a done deal. Now they're talking about a possible vote. Where does it stand? Well, next week could be the big decision week for the Raiders and the NFL owners. The meeting next week in Phoenix is probable to vote on the Raiders' relocation based on uh, one of the owners saying that it is definitely on the agenda. Um, if the vote is delayed, it'll probably be picked up again in May at the uh, owners' meeting in Chicago. 
relocation fees from the NFL themselves, that is a big part of the cost of moving. But perhaps not so much for this team. What's the story there, Mark? Well, when the two teams moved to L.A., uh, the Rams and the Chargers recently, they were charged $650 million each as a relocation fee. My understanding is that the Raiders have worked out a deal to pay half of that, although it's in the range of about 325 to maybe up to $375 million as relocation fee. I can't tell you why their fee is less uh, than the other two teams, why it's uh, virtually half, but there is a discrepancy, and my understanding is that the most it'll be is up around $375 million. All right, Mark, let's hop in the Wayback Machine and dig into some sports history here. And uh, there used to be a ballpark where the field was warm and green. This week, 1961, Bill, the New York Senate approves funding for a new stadium to be built at Flushing Meadows. Shea Stadium, home of the New York Mets and Jets, would open in April of 1964. And boy, there was a lot of history made in that place. I'll say. 1971, the Patriots leave Boston, move to Foxborough. With the move, they are christened the Bay State Patriots. But the name was rejected when everyone figured out that the BS Patriots isn't the most appealing acronym. (laughs) (laughs) Hence, they became the New England Patriots upon moving to Foxborough Stadium. And this week, 1992, the Florida Marlins begin selling tickets for their inaugural season. General admission seats at Joe Robbie Stadium, where they played initially, five bucks a piece. Reserve seats, eight to ten dollars. Mm-hmm. And those beautiful box seats were going for a whopping eighteen dollars and fifty cents. Oh boy. Are you ready, Bill? It's time for your favorite segment. Yes. Stadiums sir. USA trivia, just like on our website. So here you go, Bill. And I have to warn you in advance. This is a tough one. Okay. The 1979 men's college basketball championship game is widely considered the turning point that put the NCAA tournament on the map. It featured Magic Johnson's Michigan State squad defeating Larry Bird and the Indiana State team. Mm -hmm. Can you name the arena where the famous 1979 championship game was played? Okay. Was it the pit in Albuquerque, New Mexico? Hmm. Was it Market Square Arena in Indianapolis? Hmm. Was it Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati? Mm -mm. (laughs) Or the Special Event Center in Salt Lake City? This is a good question right here. Riverfront Coliseum is out. It was too small. Uh, I think it's between Market Square Arena and the Special Event Center in Salt Lake City, and I'm going with Market Square. It would have been about the right time for that. That's an excellent guess. Your uh, theory of logic is is good, but unfortunately incorrect. I flamed out again, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the special event center in Salt Lake City was host to that uh, famous championship game. Wow. And the venue is now called the Huntsman Center, and it's the home of the Utah Utes. That but, was a tough one, Bill. I have yeah. to say I wouldn't have known it had I not seen the answer yeah. in advance. All right, Mark, we will see you next week. Have a great week. Talk to you soon, Bill. Now, coming up, stay tuned because the history of Major League Baseball in the great Northwest. Remember the Seattle Pilots? We'll revisit that on SB Nation Radio.
We have a fascinating story to tell, and to help us with it, we're reaching out to Bill Mullins. He is the Professor Emeritus of History at Oklahoma Baptist University, and he has taken a great interest in the early years of professional baseball in Seattle particularly related to the old Seattle Pilots, who we now know as the Milwaukee Brewers. And he's written and authored through the University of Washington Press a book called Becoming Big League, Seattle, the Pilots and Stadium Politics. Bill, this is a great story to tell. I certainly don't know the background fully behind it. What attracted you to this uh, particular topic? Certainly, it is an area of interest to many baseball fans who enjoy learning about the history of the game? Well, I was in Seattle in 1968-69 uh, when the Pilots played their one and only year. Um, I'm a historian, and I thought it would be nice to put my uh, my personal experience together with some of my professional abilities and, and try to tell the Pilots' story. And I ended up telling not only the Pilots' story, but Seattle's story for about a decade. I remember as a boy growing up at that time hearing American League broadcasts coming from there. Back in those days, it was an awfully big deal. It was so exciting. Why didn't it work the first time around? Well, there are a whole variety of reasons. I think it finally comes down to the team not being sufficiently financed and the city not uh, providing an, an ownership that would keep it put. And so it ended up William Daly, who was from Cleveland, an absentee owner, uh, really didn't want to fund the enterprise any longer. Bud Selig uh, wanted a team from Milwaukee. Seattle businessmen did their best to keep to keep the pilots in Seattle, but finally uh, it just didn't work out. The American League was a part of that too. The American League owners they really didn't like the um, the Seattle group that was coming together to create a nonprofit uh, ownership group, and that uh, that just well it baffled some and it incensed others. We cover the stadium beat here, Bill, quite closely, and this does tie into the original stadium where the Seattle Pilots played and where Major League Baseball first came to the Pacific Northwest, and that was Old Six Stadium. Tell us about it and uh, take us inside that place. You obviously have been in it. Six Stadium was built in 1938, and it was a pretty nice minor league stadium for a long time. By the time the, the pilots arrived, uh, it was pretty clearly a minor league stadium. It had maybe 11,000 seats, and uh, the pilots wanted as many as 30,000. They finally had to settle for 25, and it had some real problems. I think that Six Stadium was one of the contributing parts to the, the pilots moving. The city just didn't want to spend very much money uh, refurbishing it, and as it worked out after the, the seats were finally put in, the refurbishing wasn't finished until the pilot's third homestand, so that put it into May. And even then, there were some problems. Uh, somebody had to climb each light pole to activate the lighting system. Oh, my. Uh, but mainly, it was a uh, water pressure problem. When there were 7,000 people uh, in the stadium or, or more, the water pressure declined precipitously about the seventh inning. And, oh, there's a story of when the Yankees were in town. Joe Pepitone came out of the game went into the locker room and uh, sudsed up, and 
the water pressure went down, and he ran out into the uh, the pilot's uh, restaurant asking what exactly had happened to the water. And Ralph Halk, I'm sure, using marine vernacular, uh, had a, a little bit of a press conference after the game uh, talking about how minor league in operation <laughs> the pilots really were. Well, that was a minor league ballpark for years. In fact, as a minor league city, Seattle had uh, already accumulated a, quite a degree of success there, had they not? That's correct. Uh, in fact, uh, after the Second World War, Seattle led the Pacific Coast League several seasons in, in attendance, but they just really couldn't get the attendance, you know, major league level attendance. They ended up with an attendance uh, less than 700,000 when a million was pretty good. Uh, their budget was based on a million uh, and probably break even was about 800,000. I wonder how Major League Baseball was able to reload so quickly, generally, and how the fans became so receptive to the return of Major League Baseball and the investment that it took. Well, I think that's the story. The $40 million bond issue for the Kingdom was approved at the same time that the American League had granted the Pilots franchise to Seattle. And even with that, there was some question whether the, the people were going to vote. It requires a 60% approval rate. And there was some question whether they were going to vote at that at that rate. And uh, the American League sent in Mickey Mantle and Carl Yastrzemski and the American League president, Joe Cronin, came in uh, to assure Seattleites that the team was here to stay and that Seattle would be truly a big league city uh, if they were willing to build the kingdom. And so they approved it. But the the process of building the kingdom went all the way from 1968 when it was approved to 1976 when it was finished. So it was a pretty arduous process, and I'd have to give credit to the the King County executive, kind of like uh, the mayor of the county, John Spellman, who later went on to become governor. John Spellman really pushed forward, even when the pilots left. He got the kingdom built uh, at a pretty good price even without a team to occupy it. And the fact that the kingdom was there is what finally persuaded Major League Baseball to grant the Mariners franchise to Seattle. Bill, this is a fascinating story, and I'm glad that you have gone ahead and uh, written this book. And we wish you very well, continued success uh, with it. The book is called Becoming Big League, The Seattle Pilots and Stadium Politics, the story of the original pilots and six stadium, and boy, it brings back a lot of memories for me as a kid growing up. We wish you well, Bill. Thanks for visiting. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed being with you. Bill Mullins, our guest. That is our show for this week. We invite you to come back, join us next week, and stay tuned now because we have a full day of sports coverage. It's ahead right here on SB Nation Radio.